one day I was sitting around wondering if there were any conspiracy theories about architecture, which is something that I'm quite keen on. So I fired up the old laptop and did a couple of Google searches, and sure enough, there is one. One that's weird and funny and just a little bit sad. While researching this conspiracy theory, a new one popped up on the interwebs, this time about urban planning, another subject I'm very interested in. And so between the Great Tartarian Empire slash Great Mud Flood theory and the newly minted freakout about 15-minute cities, well, it kind of felt like this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse was sort of writing itself. And it's called Tartaria Sauce. Great Tartaria and the 15-Minute City. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, And along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Transcontinental Hustle. That's a 2010 album by polka folk gypsy punk rock band Gogo Bordello. We first see mention of Great Tartaria in the way out there ramblings of Russian mathematician Anatoly Fomenko, born in 1945 and creator of what's called the New Chronology. The New Chronology is a pseudoscientific theory examined at length at a previous episode, but the short of it is that written history only goes back to about 800 CE or so, and all the events that supposedly took place before that, like the kingdoms of Sumeria and Babylon, the Egyptian pharaohs, stuff in the Old Testament, the ancient Greeks, Buddha, and all the rest, all those events actually took place between the years 1000 and 1500 CE. But then, around the year 1600, the church conspired with others to falsify history and inaccurately extended the timeline way into the past. Why? To cover up the existence of the greatest civilization ever to exist, Tartaria, a society led by the true Russians that built pretty much everything we see and developed every system that we still use, but then got suppressed by scholars. This deeply crackpot theory then mingled with the works of Nikolai Levashov, a Russian occultist and reputed psychic healer. Born in the USSR in 1961, Levashov was sort of a latter-day Rasputin claiming secret knowledge and magical powers. His writings were deeply anti-Semitic and actually got banned in Russia, a country not really all that keen on Jews to begin with, so he must have been writing some pretty inflammatory stuff. 
Even the Russian Orthodox Church declared his organization, which is named Renaissance the Golden Age, a, quote, destructive cult. After the fall of European communism, he found himself, like a lot of lunatics, in California, where he practiced distance healing, studied Miwok energy dances, and engaged in a lot of quackery. Levishov died in 2012, but four years later, as we now know, certain extreme factions inside Russia decided it would be awesome if Donald Trump won the U.S. presidential election. So a new conspiracy theory started cropping up in various corners of the internet, one that took these old ideas of Great Tartaria, mainly those of Fomenko and Levishov, combined those with a thorough lack of understanding of architecture and some hinky notions about history and technology. And it all starts with Manhattan's Singer Building. This City city Never never Sleeps, sleeps. a 1983 song by British synth-pop new wave duo Eurythmics. The Beaux Arts and French Second Empire-style Singer Building was completed in 1909 by architect Ernest Flagg. Stretching up to 670 feet total and 41 floors, it was the tallest building in the world at the time it was built and one of the earlier skyscrapers in the downtown financial district over the corner of Liberty and Broadway, right by where Zuccotti Park is today. The tower was gorgeous with a facade of red brick, light stone, rusticated bluestone, limestone, and terracotta with white iron window and balcony railings. It also had a lot of wood inside of it despite being designed to be fireproof. The floors were mainly concrete. The lobby was clad in Turkish Povenazzo marble and contained 32 tons of ornate bronze work. It was as much an art piece as it was a functioning structure. People wrote articles and at least one entire book about its beauty and elegance. However, progress marches on, and by the 1960s, the building had been eclipsed by larger, more modern buildings that blocked out all the natural light that was actually part of the design scheme. Despite the creation of the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission in 1965, the Singer Tower never got registered as a landmark, and so in 1967, it was demolished, replaced by one Liberty Plaza, which is owned by U.S. Steel, an international-style black glass and steel rectangle reaching 743 feet and 54 floors into the sky, housing almost a full acre of office space per floor. That's big, but today it's only the 65th tallest building in Manhattan. Well, some of the denizens of Reddit and YouTube came across images of the old Singer Tower, and noticing its unusually slender and elegant shape, well, they started thinking, why was this thing destroyed after only 59 years? Instead of lovely things like this, we're saddled with these glass and metal behemoths all over the place. And what about other buildings that have met a similar fate, these intrepid internet sleuths thought, like the old Penn Station, which opened in 1910 and was also a Beaux-Arts masterpiece, considered by many to be one of the finest structures in all of New York at the time. The official line is it became run down and frankly too expensive to maintain, and when plans for putting Madison Square Garden above it were approved, the top of the station essentially got sort of lopped off. Demolition started in 1963, and while top architects at the time tried to save it, their rallying cry was, don't amputate, renovate, Penn Station went the way of the dinosaurs in 68, and today only a few elements survive. 
And let's not forget the 1915 World's Fair called the Panama Pacific International Exposition to celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal and which was held in San Francisco to show that that city had recovered from the devastating 1906 earthquake and fire that had happened not even a decade earlier. Buildings of staggering beauty, including the centerpiece, the 435-foot-tall Tower of Jewels covered in 100,000 faceted cut-glass gems. Today, all that's left is the iconic dome of the Palace of Fine Arts, the Japanese Tea House, which was actually stuck on a boat and sent to the city of Belmont, and the auditorium over by City Hall, which is today known as the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. A replica of the French Pavilion at the Expo was built in Lincoln Park to house the Legion of Honor Museum. But that's kind of it. Sure, the story goes that it all fell apart since it was never intended to be permanent, and in fact, the Palace of Fine Arts was in such bad repair, they seriously considered tearing it down because it was becoming a danger. But then they said, nah, let's rebuild it. And so they reconstructed the whole thing using more permanent materials. Everything else, however, eventually got demolished. The same goes for the famous White City of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair called the World's Columbian Exposition to mark the arrival of Columbus to the New World in 1492. By all accounts, the work done by Daniel Burnham, the lead architect, and Frederick Olmsted, the genius landscaper who'd shaped Manhattan Central Park and Brooklyn's Prospect Park and Boston's Emerald Necklace and Mount Royal in Montreal, the grounds for the White House and the U.S. Capitol, San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, all the Riverside Parks in Chicago and Washington Park, a man who would, over his career, make over a hundred beautiful places. Well, this was the best work either of these two men had ever done. The style was bow arts and everything was a gleaming white, inspired by the line, Thine Alabaster City's Gleam from the song America the Beautiful. Over 200 structures, but again, it was always designed to be temporary and very few survived the ravages of time, as well as a fire that ripped through the grounds in July 1894. I mean, you can kind of see how the Google searches went, right? The Singer Building to Penn Station. Then, San Francisco World's Fair to Chicago's World's Fair. Beautiful Gilded Age and Beaux Arts buildings that are no longer with us. And then, perhaps, this train of thought had a head-on collision with old theories of Tartary, freed now from the stuffy confines of Russia, and the idea of true history being hidden by the powers that be, plus perhaps a little bit of that weird Khazar theory talked about in a previous episode, and out popped the great Tartaria conspiracy theory. World, World in My, in my eyes. eyes, a song by synth-pop group Depeche Mode from their 1990 album Violator. In a nutshell, here's the theory. All these buildings that you can see pictures of were evidence of a sophisticated society that was once the pinnacle of achievement. But then a terrible event occurred that weakened Tartaria, as this society was known, opening the door for other lesser cultures to begin systematically wiping out all traces of its splendor. That terrible event was the Great Mud Flood. Sometime in the mid-19th century, probably, there was a massive flood of mud all over the world. The cause of this catastrophe is debated, but some adherents think it might even have been an advanced weapon of some kind specifically targeting Tartaran remnants. But maybe it was a natural occurrence. At any rate, it happened. It happened all over the world, and many Tartarian structures were buried. The proof? 
Why? You can look pretty much at any old pictures of cities and you'll notice a lot of buildings look really dirty, like they had mud all over them. And you can plainly see buildings with doors half submerged or windows at ground level. Old pictures of anyone digging in a city are also said to be people not making a foundation for a new structure, but people trying to recover from the great mud flood disaster. You will also note that there are very few people on the streets in many old photos. That's because there were very few people left alive at all after the terrible mud flood. Certainly the Tartarians were wiped out as a people, and those humans who remained set about getting rid of almost everything else that was left. You see, that was the true purpose of both world wars. No, not conflict with Germany spilling past European borders in an increasingly interdependent world, but a coordinated, systematic attempt to bomb and burn whatever Tartarian buildings were left. Also, many, if not all, earthquakes are intentionally created for the same purpose. But you see, not everything was destroyed. Some buildings were just too darn big or too well built. And you can see them in cultures that are supposedly wildly different. Why, have you ever noticed how many municipal structures have domes? What do you think, that's some kind of coincidence? Of course it's not. Domes are a hallmark of Tatarian architecture. So are star-shaped forts, which can also be found all over the planet. And decorative pinnacles, likewise found everywhere. Other structures even bigger and older like the Great Pyramids were also Tartarian and they fared better in the mud flood because they were so darn big. And many surviving buildings we see and even still use today are actually much older than is claimed. For example, the White House in Washington, D.C. is actually several centuries old, a Tartarian masterwork. It is decidedly not an 1824 to 1830 neoclassical rebuild after the British burnt down the original in the War of 1812. I mean, we certainly don't build these sorts of things today. And why not? Because we don't know how to. And to try and say that these enormous, beautiful buildings we see here and there were built by us? It's laughable, especially if you're trying to say this stuff was built in what, the 1890s or the 1910s? They were still using horses for transportation. Preposterous that they could build buildings like this. As one Tartaria YouTuber named John Levy, who has 250 videos on the subject and over 275,000 subscribers, put it in his 2019 video titled False Historical Narrative, when looking at images of various ornate post office buildings, like the Second Empire-style City Hall Post Office in New York from 1905, he said, quote, How many stamps did you sell to build yourself a post office like this? He finds the idea that an organization still delivering mail using horses and charging pennies for stamps could somehow drum up the money to afford such a building. He says that is, quote, absolutely ridiculous. He then weirdly concludes that, quote, this is not a post office. No, it was a structure built by the Tartarians for some other purpose, and then the post office just sort of moved in once Tartaria was destroyed. You see, we today are squatters, living in the leftovers of a once great and advanced civilization. And our entire history is a lie. Those world's fairs we see pictures of, those were major cities of Great Tartaria, now wiped out, victims of willful destruction and a global flood of wet dirt. They might, they be, might giants, be giants, 
a song by the Brooklyn power pop geek rocker group They Might Be Giants on their 1990 album Flood. You'll also note that many of the surviving buildings we have around are rather big, as I mentioned before. Now, combine that fact with old photos you sometimes see showing people of abnormal height and what is the obvious conclusion to reach. That's right, the Tartarians were giants. Now, not all followers of the great Tartarian mythology buy this, but a lot of them do. Yes, they say they were giants, and in fact, they are the giants mentioned in the Bible and other ancient texts. More proof can be found in mountains. Wait, mountains, you might ask? Yes, some mountains and many rock formations are not rocks at all but petrified Tartarian structures that were maybe used as government buildings or power plants or cathedrals or who knows what. (laughs) I wish I was making this up. See, you'll note how many mountains kind of have a pyramidal shape. That's because they're pyramids constructed by the genius Tartarians. You know those crazy-looking buttes in places like Monument Valley in the Colorado Plateau, sometimes reaching as high as a 1,000 feet? Those are not caprock cores that got exposed when the softer surrounding rock eroded away. Those are scientific stations and religious buildings built by the Tartarians that have been turned to stone. Now, maybe this petrification was a natural process, since these petrified structures are literally hundreds of thousands of years old, or maybe they got turned into stone when some of us small humans got our hands on some Tartarian super advanced technology in a conflict that is now lost to history. One variant on the great Tartaria theory says that a long time ago, some of us regular-sized humans managed to get our hands on a bunch of Tartarian weapons, and, well, we staged a little rebellion. Much damage was inflicted, but the Tartarians, far superior and also way taller, beat us back down. To be fair, this wasn't some sort of nasty speciesism. Not all of us participated. You see, the Tartarians, who were just wonderful, were sharing their knowledge and technology with us, but slowly, because we have some pretty nasty tendencies due to our animal origins and we needed to have our consciousnesses raised before we would be ready to handle this technology. In fact, some Tartaricists maintain that the Tartarians created us humans, uplifting us from primates possibly initially as a labor force, but then they saw sort of a spark of divinity in us and started treating us more like equals. So you see, they were guiding us, they were shepherding us, but some greedy human types wanted it all now and thus the uprising. After the conflict, an uneasy stalemate persisted for millennia, but then the great mud flood came and the nasty types got the upper hand and wham, started destroying evidence of what was left of great Tartaria. Bury Bury the the Evidence, a 2001 song by the father of trip-hop, Bristol-born Adrian Thaws, better known as Tricky. Why this animus between Homo sapiens sapiens and the Tartarians? If they did, in fact, create us, shouldn't we be grateful? Well, the problem is, you see, that humans suck. That's very much part of the Tartarian narrative. We are stupid, lazy, and greedy, and we were jealous of our betters and we wanted what they had for ourselves. Or rather, a few despotically inclined go-getters from among our ranks wanted to grab control of the Tartarians' technology so that they could rule over the rest of us. 
You see, the Tartarians had mastered free energy. Many of their structures were built in harmony with planetary and cosmic resonances designed to harness and focus the abundant zero-point energy that flows everywhere in the universe. How do they build such tall buildings? Anti-gravity tech. Centuries later, one would rise up from our own ranks and actually rediscover this, Nikola Tesla. Some people think he was maybe naturally attuned to the cosmic energy surrounding us because he was born during a fierce electrical storm. Others say he found documents and decoded secrets left over from the Tartarian Empire. However he got the knowledge, Tesla tried to bring free energy to the world but was defeated at every turn by nasty greedheads like Edison because those in charge do not want us to have nice things unless we pay them for them. You'll note echoes of other narratives in this whole tale. Lost great civilization destroyed? Atlantis. In a flood? Noah. Advanced beings who created us? The Anunnaki. History as we've learned it is a lie? The new chronology. Don't trust people in power? Technology suppression? Wainscotting? Zero-point energy? Tesla? The power of crystals? The 432 hertz conspiracy? It's all here. There's even a sort of great reset included in all this, one that happened in the past, and so it's natural to think that, hey, you know what? Maybe the nasty New World Order is planning another great reset in the future. But since the Tartarians are already gone, some of us will be the targets. As more and more people discover the Tartaria tale online, additional narratives started getting attached to it. That whole there be giants thing is really just a rebirth of quite old ideas people had when dinosaur bones were found. The first time anybody took a serious scientific look at a dinosaur bone was in 1677, and that was English naturalist Robert Plot. And even then, he didn't hypothesize the existence of thunder lizards. It wasn't until the 1820s that the whole idea of dinosaurs really took off. The fact is there's almost no culture anywhere at any time that we've recorded that doesn't mention giants is because dinosaur bones are found everywhere. But Tartaria folks say, no, there are stories of giants everywhere because there were giants everywhere. And just as every culture on earth has a story of some kind of great flood, Tartaria believers says this just proves the mud flood theory. It's a little bit like saying since people believed the earth was flat for much longer than not, that's proof that it really is flat. Speaking of flat earthers, some of them are starting to get in on the Tartaria action as well. After all, if we're being lied to about this, we could also be being lied to about that, right? I mean, that's just irrefutable logic, that is. While many Reddit threads and YouTube videos spend a long time looking at and speculating about photographs of beautiful old buildings, proponents of this theory also look through documents to support their musings. As Nathaniel Lloyd, writer and host of the rather fantastic Historical Blindness podcast, notes in his April 15, 2022 episode titled The Lost Empire of Tartaria, some Tartaria true believers have found a June 1957 CIA report, which was declassified in August 1999, titled National Cultural Development Under Communism. And Tartarian proponents think that inside this, they have found absolute proof of the conspiracy. They cite the following excerpt from the report, quote, or let us take the matter of history, which, along with religion, language, and literature, constitute the core of a people's cultural heritage. Here again, the communists have interfered in a shameless manner. For example, 
On August 9, 1944, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, sitting in Moscow, issues a directive ordering the Partner's Tartar Provincial Committee, quote, to proceed to a scientific revision of the history of Tartaria, to liquidate serious shortcomings and mistakes of a nationalistic character committed by individual writers and historians in dealing with Tartar history. In other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten, let us be frank, was to be falsified. My God, say the Tartar folks, the CIA is openly admitting that there was an official effort to change the history of Tartaria. Now, this excerpt appears on page 10 of the 14-page report, which is about Muslims in the USSR and the Soviet attitude towards self-determination for Muslim-majority regions under their domain, and how there had been a long-standing policy of sort of russifying all local histories. What Tartaria conspiracy folks neglect to include in their citation is the end of that paragraph. And the end of the paragraph goes, in other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten. Let us be frank, was to be falsified. In order to eliminate references to great Russian aggressions and to hide the facts of the real course of Tartar-Russian relations. In every Muslim area within the USSR, historians, on orders of the Communist Party, have rewritten history to distort the facts so that the Russians always appear in a good light. Well, now that is a very different thing than saying that there was a concerted effort by Russia to wipe out the history of a globe-spanning utopia of giants that then got irreparably weakened by a worldwide flood of mud and that the CIA, and by extension the Americans and by extension the West, were on board with all of this. YouTuber John Levy, who was mentioned when talking about ornate post offices, said something quite telling in there among the ramblings on that video. He said, quote, You know, I think we all knew, but I think we needed permission in some way to believe it. As writer Martin Trainer said to me in a previous episode, the conspiracists are trying to find questions or proofs to fit answers that they've already decided upon. After all, these Tartara conspiracy people are willfully ignoring the entire tone and content of that 14-page CIA report and even the rest of the paragraph that makes its meaning clear to anybody proficient in the English language. Like almost all conspiracy theory promoters and adherents, they are doing the research backwards. Eye of the Storm, a 2015 song by Icelandic indie folk chamber pop band of Monsters and Men. One has to ask, do all the people who say they believe in this great Tartarian narrative actually believe it? Can it really be possible that 26,000 members of the r slash Tartaria subreddit and all 275,000 of John Levy's YouTube subscribers, just to name two of the many places you can find this stuff on the web, is it possible that all those people really think there's something to the idea that nice-looking buildings are all really centuries older than we're told they are that they were built by benevolent mystical scientist wizard giants and that us homo sapiens sapiens waged war on them, some say with Tartarian nuclear weapons, and also mud erupted from somewhere and covered most of the earth, wiping them out. And that some human survivors of that catastrophe swept into the power vacuum and the rest of us just went along with it, conspiring to teach our children and grandchildren a false historical narrative just so we could turn their amazing buildings into post offices and banks. 
I mean, that sounds pretty preposterous, doesn't it? And yet, reading through literally tens of thousands of posts on Reddit and social media and wading through the hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of barely coherently narrated videos out there, it sure does seem like these people totally buy into it. As one post I saw in a Facebook group devoted to Tartaria said, quote, when I think about what was taken from us, I just get so angry. And perhaps here we get to the nut of it. The times, well, they are a-changing quite rapidly, and there are some who just don't like it. It's probably noteworthy that the great Tartaria thing got its online legs starting in 2016, a year that, in the U.S. at least, there was a groundswell of people who, despite being in the majority, nonetheless felt disenfranchised, and these people thought that finally, after years of keeping quiet, they were finally being heard, and so was born the MAGA movement and QAnon. What is probably the definitive article of the Tartaria Theory, a 2021 piece by Zach Mortis, writing for Bloomberg, titled Inside the Tartarian Empire, the QAnon of Architecture. This article makes the connection very clear. Like QAnon, the Tartaria thing sweeps in a bunch of conspiracy theories and notions, culminating in the revelation that we are being lied to, that a powerful group of individuals is up to no good and has even worse things planned for the near future. Mega conspiracies like these ask those who encounter them to look around and decide if the world is the way you want it to be, if things are how you think they should be, and furthermore, why not examine how you personally are faring in the current status quo? Are you successful, happy, and rich? If the answer to any of this is no, well then, we have an explanation for you. Before they can really get started with the next phase of things, you can maybe become an active participant in the struggle to right the ship, to put things back the way that they're supposed to be. One of the overarching motifs of the Tartaria conspiracy theory is that the past was better than the present, though it does this by denying normal people had anything to do with that past awesomeness. It sucks now, and it was better then, so maybe we should try and set the clock back to when it all made sense. Many magamaniacs and trumpeteers think that Trump's Make America Great Again tagline was referring to the 1950s. For Robert Welch Jr., founder of the rabidly anti-communist John Birch Society, it was the year 1900. For those who subscribed to Anatoly Fomenko's new chronology, it was seemed to be sometime in the first half of the second millennium CE. City, city to City, to city. a 1977 song by Scottish singer-songwriter Jerry Rafferty. Now, sometime at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023, people on social media started seeing posts warning of a new threat, the 15-minute city. Irish far-right conspiracy gal Gemma O'Doherty whose political aspirations kept getting squashed by people not voting for her, despite her jumping on various popular bandwagons like COVID vaccines kill people, Muslims are involved in a stealth invasion of Ireland, and the Gardai, the Irish police, cover up pedophilia and child murder. But no dice, she just couldn't seem to get any traction. But then she came across this urban planning concept, the 15-minute city. The term started coming into more common use when it was used by French-Colombian urbanist and professor at the Sorbonne, Carlos Moreno, who, along with four other colleagues, 
published a January 2021 article in Smart Cities titled Introducing the 15-Minute City, Sustainability, Resilience, and Place Identity in Future Post-Pandemic Cities. The term had been around for a couple of years before that in new urbanism circles, but this is really where a lot of people encountered it. Described as a, quote, return to a local way of life in a November 2020 article on Bloomberg titled The 15-Minute City, No Cars Required, is Urban Planning's New Utopia, an article that looked at the idea, especially since Anne Hidalgo had made it a major part of her re-election campaign to stay on as mayor of Paris. The idea is simple. No one in a city should live more than either a 15-minute walk or a 15-minute bicycle ride from their job, bank, food shops, healthcare, school, or entertainment facilities. Its key concept is chrono-urbanism, which prioritizes the value of people's time over the cost of people's time. Your time, especially your free time, has inherent value. Moreno's model contains four main components, density, proximity, diversity, and digitization. Adapting ideas about walkable cities, developed by Clarence Perry and others, and building on models presented by Jane Jacobs in her still amazing 1961 critique of 1950s urban planning policies in the U.S., a book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, these 15-minute cities could also be subdivided into smaller units known as five-minute neighborhoods or complete communities, where all of the essentials were always within five minutes of your front door. In some ways, this whole thing kind of harkens back to city planning ideas developed by Frank Lloyd Wright, though in many ways, they're the exact opposite. Wright conceived of what he called broad acre cities, where every resident would have a minimum of one acre of land for their own use, he thought to grow food, and to spend leisure time on. And then communities would be huddled together into little sort of sub-cities where everything would be within fairly close reach by car. And, of course, he understood some people in one suburban cluster might not want to, for example, partake in a entertainment value in their own immediate area, like we have a cinema, but the symphony hall is over there in a different area. These clusters would be connected to one another by super highways. So everything a resident could possibly want would be within a 15 to 30 minute drive from their front door. And... Elements of this idea were implemented in many places, notably North America, which led to the suburban sprawl that we all know and kind of hate today. The 15-minute city has the same goals, but eliminates the cars, making things more compact and more local. It's redesigning municipal districts for people first, not cars first. Wait a minute. Did you say get rid of cars? Cars are freedom. Do they want to take away our freedoms? Now, this argument would take hold in the U.S., where car ownership is 831 per thousand people, eighth highest in the world, but probably carries less weight in a country like Ireland, where it's only 535 cars per thousand people, making them 47th in the world. But in his paper, Moreno also referenced the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group paper that came out in 2020 that outlined using the concept to help cities, quote, build back better. <laughs> Build Back Better is one of those trigger phrases for the Agenda 21, Agenda 30 conspiracy crowd, along with the Great Reset, which was a plan developed by the World Economic Forum. All of these were talked about in a previous episode, but suffice it to say that for those in an agitated and paranoid frame of mind, these terms equate to stripping away people's freedoms and taking their stuff as part of an implementation of a new world order. And now, Gemma O'Doherty had a drum 
that she could beat. Deeply Deeply Dippy, Dippy. a 1992 song by Right Said Fred that reached number one on the UK charts. In January 2023, O'Doherty started issuing dire warnings that, quote, Marxist Dublin councils were going to start locking people into their neighborhoods and maybe even their homes, deciding if and when you could leave and where you would be allowed to go. Cities would become huge prison camps and the globalist police state would have finally arrived. Now, that does sound pretty scary, and so people kind of started freaking out about this 15-minute city concept because apparently they just didn't have any real problems to deal with, so let's worry about this. In late 2022, when the English city of Oxford started thinking about implementing some 15-minute city ideas to alleviate their pretty terrible traffic problems, protests broke out. The specific proposal was a six-month trial of six electronic traffic filters that would basically require private car owners to have a pass in order to drive in these six areas between 7 in the morning and 7 at night. And if you didn't have the pass and drove between those hours, you'd be fined 35 pounds. Passes would have been issued free for residents, and for outsiders, they would be available for a small fee. And all the monies collected during this process would help the neighborhood with improvements and upkeep. Very much like how many European countries require the purchase of a low-cost sticker to stick on your windshield in order to drive on their highways. Innocuous enough and not even really that groundbreaking. But some on the far right had the bit between their teeth and ramped up the rhetoric. That whole COVID lockdown business, you see, had just been a test to see how compliant the populace would be. Now the real plan is coming. Anti-5G folks also got in on the action, claiming the 5G towers going up everywhere that will eventually enable the widespread use of self-driving cars and a true internet of things, will actually be beaming signals into people to make them docile and maybe even control their minds. One Irish group also disliked smart parking meters for some reason. Climate change deniers also saw the whole business, that the planet's becoming less hospitable to human life, was another lie being planted in people's minds simply to prepare them for the advent of the evil 15-minute city. And the whole thing snowballed, with many groups forming to combat this totalitarian takeover attempt. Far-right mouthpieces and rabid anti-vaxxers like Katie Hopkins, Pierce Corbin, and Lawrence Fox showed up, as did the neo-Nazi group Patriotic Alternative, who say that all non-white people should be deported, even if they were born in Britain, and all gay people are pedophiles. And the two brothers who make up the 1990s musical group Right Said Fred also showed up, because apparently they have now become conspiracy theorists. One organization called Not Our Future sent around leaflets telling people that they were being used as guinea pigs in a far-reaching experiment in population control and that the UN was behind the climate change hoax and part of the great plot. Some said that once people were corralled into these smaller urban neighborhoods, the microchips hiding inside the COVID-19 vaccines would be activated, allowing dark overseers to track their every move and maybe even control your body. Other groups used loaded terminology calling neighborhoods where people could get a coffee, go to their office, visit an art gallery, get their eyes checked, and see a movie, all within a 15-minute walk or bike ride from their home. These got termed prison camps, smart city prisons, open-air prisons, digital gulags, and Nazi 15-minute districts. Wow, that's pretty scary. And such a dire threat needs a proportionate response. So, of course, naturally, next came the death threats. Party at Ground Zero. 
That's a 1990 song by American ska punk band Fishbone. Oxford City Councilors started getting hassled by people lurking outside their offices. Comments on social media became increasingly hostile. City and county officials started getting nasty emails and anonymous phone calls started flooding in, making threats of bodily harm and even death. At one protest in February 2023, 2,000 people took part, including a young girl who was clearly reading a speech her mother had written for her. Things headed up and there were scuffles, and five people got arrested for protesting something that is not happening and is never going to happen, but they protested anyway, and then they got violent about it. This whole thing is being encouraged, coordinated, and sometimes even funded by far-right groups. The phrase climate lockdown, which actually has no real meaning at all, is trending among the true believers. Other climate deniers have taken it up as a rallying call, and even Fox News has started just asking questions about a nefarious scheme to lock people into their homes forever. And naturally, Jordan Peterson has weighed in with his half-baked notions, pushing the idea that you'll only be allowed to drive somewhere if you get permission from, quote, idiot tyrannical bureaucrats. What a genius. Most people don't really spend a lot of time thinking about their city or their neighborhood from a planning perspective, so they naturally wondered if this whole 15-minute thing meant that they would no longer be able to travel more than 15 minutes from their homes. They hear this historical rhetoric and, well, they, they start to wonder. And so now people in local government have to spend a good chunk of their time issuing statements that say, no, this is not the case. It's about making the city better for you, the residents, giving you more options closer to your home so that you don't always have to default to using a car for every little thing that you want to do because we're reprioritizing your time as having intrinsic value. Some supporters of the 15-minute idea point out the concept had actually been around in some form or another for quite a while and that other cities had instituted something similar in the past. And look at those places. Those citizens aren't being locked into anything. The city of Portland, Oregon implemented what they called 20-minute cities way back in 2012. And more than 10 years later, tangible benefits are reported by both the city and the residents. As one clear example of how this simple idea can have long-reaching effects, consider Manhattan's Times Square. The famous monument to commercialization has been long hostile to pedestrians. New York Mayor Bloomberg had Danish architect Jan Giel and his team come out and take a look at the space to see if it could be improved. Giel has a long history of humanizing shared spaces by putting emphasis on how the space is actually used. So he and his people hung out on Times Square for a while and simply counted the number of people who entered the area, how many of them came in cars and how many of them came on foot or by bicycle. And then they looked at the physical layout of the Times Square intersection. What they discovered was at once simple and groundbreaking. It turned out 90% of the physical infrastructure of Times Square was oriented to cars, but 90% of the human traffic going through the area was on foot. Like the whole thing was topsy-turvy. So city planners began redesigning it under the banner of livability and mobility, and by 2016, Times Square had been turned into a, quote, world-class plaza, as the official Times Square website puts it. Now there was plenty of room to walk and even sit down and relax and just soak it all in. 
Some local businesses initially opposed this, thinking that if you reduced car traffic, it would reduce their business, but they soon found out that, in fact, people sauntering by their shops tend to pop in and have a look around way more often than someone driving by will. Their business actually increased as a result of the reconfiguration. Other benefits included pollution reduction, far fewer vehicle-related accidents, and yet traffic still flowed smoothly through the area thanks to ingenious designs from Norwegian architects and landscape designers Snota, who won the bid for the project and titled their work, Putting the Square Back in Times Square. So despite the furor, many cities are now looking at new ideas, of which the 15-minute city is just one. There is, frankly, no reason why we can't improve the places we live, work, and play. In fact, it would be perverse not to, simply because some people have decided they don't want any more change of any kind in any area of their lives at all and would like to freeze things in amber as they are or maybe set the clock back to how they were in the past when things were simpler and lock that in. Yet for all the noise these reactionaries make, they don't really have a ton of power, and many places are looking forward, not backwards. London's Department for Transport is focusing on making the British capital much more pedestrian and bike-friendly in what they're terming a, quote, gear change. Paris has already made huge changes and plans to make many more. A case study in Shanghai not long ago showed a 15-minute walkable city would result in direct health benefits for people. Melbourne, Australia already had great success when they brought in Jan Giel's team and have continued to improve the city along the 20-minute city model. Israel seems to be all in on 15-minuteism, as is China and many European countries. Where I live, in Prague in the Czech Republic, the current municipal plan aims to protect the historical center, revitalize the communist-era housing estates, the projects for you Americans, that surround the outskirts of the city, and then build a series of interlocking multi-use communities in a ring between these two areas using state-of-the-art technology including green roofs, vertical gardens, smart lighting, and so on to create sustainable 15-minute sub-communities while still preserving the large amount of green space Prague has. Almost a third of all land inside the city limits is parks, woods, meadows, and fields. And it'll all be connected by walking and bike paths and improved public transportation options. Many other cities are following similar lines of thinking. Bittersweet Symphony. Symphony. That's a 1997 song by Britpop neo-psychedelia group The Verve. An excellent article by Richard Partington in The Guardian, written right after those Oxford protests, notes the variety in those protesting in Oxford. Almost every right-wing talking point and conspiracy theory was represented somewhere in the crowd. Climate change, great reset, great replacement, contrails, it was all there. Including people protesting the idea of making cashless payment systems universal because that way the government would be able to track you and what is this China and blah, 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 blah. However, the article notes that at the heart of much of this freakout, there is the glaring truth of inequality. The rich are becoming super rich. The super rich are becoming de facto nation states unto themselves. And yet for most of us, our standard of living has either barely changed at all or has degraded. But rather than address these problems head on, some politicians are taking the easier, cheaper way out pushing nonsensical narratives and conspiracy theories in lieu of concrete policies because that's all they need, they think, to get votes. Such glaring inequality in a society breeds resentment, 
Resentment builds into anger and eventually rage. Otherwise, thoughtful people start forming what might be termed a mob. And even if it starts online, it sometimes spills over into meat space. But it's all smoke and mirrors, and people with very real concerns in the very real world can easily be tricked into falling for the hokum by the unscrupulous, who only wish to sow disharmony in order to maintain the status quo and maybe get themselves a little more influence and power than they had before the chaos that they helped create. And that is how looking at pictures of beautiful buildings that are no longer around and ideas for making cities friendlier for walkers and bicyclists turn into flashpoints for speculative exposition fueled by discontent and a fear of the future. And before you know it, citizens are reaching out to their local government officials, not with complaints or suggestions, but to threaten them with abuse or harm about things that just aren't true, that are fictions. They even sometimes threaten them with death as if we didn't have enough actual problems to contend with. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.